Hi, it's Blue here and it's uh, 2nd of April 2021 and I am reading marathon number 23 which was the Ironman marathon in May 2014. It's written as part of a report about the whole Ironman and it's written in the um, first person and current to 2014 so I'll try not to ad-lib too much but it's going to be quite an experience reading it because I haven't read it in probably six or seven years. Part four, the run. A section of the 2014 Ironman report. As I walked into T2, I heard a volunteer say there were 100 bags still on the racks. I was surprised there were so many behind me as it didn't seem um, that many people behind me on the way back. Anyway, I picked up bag number 1495. I walked into the change area and was interested in seeing a fair few competitors still there, slowly and meticulously getting organised for their run. I was there with a great sense of relief. You always worry on the ride about whether you're going to have a flat tyre. And I've done plenty of marathons to that date, 22 to be exact, so I thought I'd be okay. Little did I know I had to draw on experience. Maybe they were around me, these people, or I was just in my own head for the whole ride. As you can see, there is a lot more thinking happening now as I started the run. In the transition, too, I decided to go for a full change of clothes with the exception of the arm warmers and the cycle thermal t-shirt. I thought I had a nice tea, but I forgot to pack it. I put on my six-foot track tri-top, the run-for-your-life cap, running glasses with clear lenses, line brake skins, a pair of black shorts and ankle socks. I slipped in the middle of my tri-pocket, the red North Face spray top and the right pocket was the home for the second contact lace of salt tablets and Panadols. I wrapped a long sleeve thermal top around my waist and strapped on my Garmin above my watch, wearing my two timing pieces, one for real time and the other for pace. Then I looked at my left foot. I had a problem. I couldn't get my cycling shoe off. The volunteer and I just looked and wondered what to do. My cycling shoes had two Velcro flaps and the top had, the, had a corrugated strap passing through the mechanism that clicks as the strap goes through. I passed the point of no return and I thought I'd have to cut my cycling shoes off my feet. After three attempts, the last of almost taking off the back of my heel, it provided me with a foot put to put into my second Hoka tarmac shoes so I could start the run. After a slow walk to the exit, a few deep breaths, checking the time, it was 4.20pm and eating some food, I was on the way. The run was an attack on my senses. I needed to be mindful about what I needed to do. Runners are so close to you. People are all over the course, cheering. There is a huge buzz at the aid stations and I passed the finishing shoot eight times with music blaring, hearing the announcer declare, you are an iron man, knowing that my time was going to come later. But there all the runners ahead of me were finishing. As I ran past this several times, I refused to look ahead, neither at the finisher's shoot as it approached, nor to my right as I passed by it. I had formulated several, several plans for the run, but never got round to posting them because I couldn't make up my mind. In the end, this was a good idea, as I had to use all the options I'd planned. The course involves four just under 10 kilometre loops. From the transition, we went out towards the town, past the swim start, along the river foreshore of the town square and the finishes shoot. 
Then we diverted right along a road up a hill to circle through the park adjacent to the break wall and back through the finishers area to the transition area. From here, the western side of the course involved heading out along Settlement Point and returning through one of the four shoots 400 metres to the west of the transition. There was a specific shoot for each lap and as I went through I received a different colour wristband recording the lap that I had done. Lap 1 was during the day and with a strong cold wind blowing in my face as I head out to the western side of the course. This is why I wore clear sunglasses so I could wear them into the evening to protect my eyes. The plan was to use Martin Fry's inspired 12 minute run, 3 minute walk at 12, 27, 42 and 57 minutes past the hour in real time and walk through the aid stations and the hill up to the loop around before the break wall. The first and second lap felt great with people saying, go six foot track runner. He will know how to finish, which gave me confidence. There was an aid station every two kilometres and I just varied what I ate and drank each time I went through. I had a Cadell bar in my pocket which I flicked to 21B on the hill section of the course which was the location I was to see the family for each lap until the finish. The spray jacket was weighing in my backpack and I moved it to the right front pocket and that felt better. My back was hurting from the ride and at one stage I laid down on the grass holding my knees and pulling them back towards my face like I had done at the Centennial Park Ultra the year before. This stretched out my back and the issue was gone for the rest of the run. Towards the end of the second lap I could feel I was off balance and thought this was not good. In fact, I thought if I didn't arrest the situation there was a possibility I would not finish. I was not being mindful of what was happening around me. I started to take note of all the factors influencing my body. My mind was being distracted in trying to see the time for my walk-run routine because it was dark. I was wet from the sweat, not cold. I was also aware of the strong wind and was strongly putting on the thermal top, though I had rolled up the arm warmers. I was getting sick of Gatorade, water, coke and gels, but I was still fine with bananas and watermelon. My toe, which was sore in the first lap, had warmed up. I had had a Panadol at 4.10 on the run, before the run, and I was ready for another one at 7.10, and I had forgotten to take my salt tablets thus far into the run. I was mentally distracted as I felt I needed to finish sooner rather than later as the family had to drive home that night after the race and I was worried for them. In short, I dropped the ball for not being aware of what was happening to my mind and my body. Fortunately, I have been through this situation before, but I had to act decisively if I was to rectify the situation. I know this is sounding a bit melodramatic, but I was really quite concerned because I was only 18 kilometres and the mall normally hits at 30 kilometres into the run. I was in newish territory now after 11 hours into the race. I found out later I ran the first lap in 1 hour and 10 minutes and the second lap in 1 hour 30 minutes. 21B said to me after the race when he was speaking to me on this lap I was slurring my words. I needed a plan. Firstly I abolished the run-walk routine vowed not to look at my watch till the end of the race, whenever that would be. The plan now was to run from aid station to aid station, walk for a few minutes and then run to the next aid station. After collecting my wristband for the second lap, I had 1,500 metres to run to the next aid station. Once there, I decided to force down some more nutrition. I had three Cokes, a banana, a gel, which I gagged on and I almost threw back. Conscious of the fact that 
that it would take me a while for nutrition to sink in. I started off to the next aid station. I felt bad because now I was being rude, ignoring all the cheering around and support, even friends on the call, some of whom I had a chance to offer an apology. It was a matter of moving forward, hoping I had done enough to stall the wobbles and hopefully reverse the situation. Before the next aid station was a section of the course with the special needs bag which I packed the night before. My plan was to use this bag at the end of the third lap when I was on the 30 plus kilometre region. I decided to act on this lap because things might deteriorate too much by the time I got back. Normally there was a volunteer at the bottom of the hill would message ahead to have the special needs bag ready. When I reached the base of the hill there was no one there. Once at the top, I asked for the bag and, and fortunately I was able to find it for them. I sat down on the ground and had some real Gatorade and felt that if I had something of substance in my stomach, um, it would all come good. There's a photo of this. There is a honey sandwich which I started to eat and it was like glue but I forced it down as much as I could. I handed the bag back to the volunteer and I would be, said I would be back for the next, the next lap. I struggled to my feet and saw 21B watching me in the distance, hence the few photos. I told him I was struggling and potentially in trouble. Meanwhile, he was on the phone to friends in Sydney relaying what was happening. Jenny and 18G were a bit further up the road. I went past them mumbling and headed down the hill to the next aid station. By the time I got, the fa- got there, the family had taken a shortcut, shortcut to be there with me. They had found a good spot and I thought they had found a good place to be a spectator on the course. When I went through the aid station, I felt obliged to take something from a volunteer. They took it as a sort of a competition to have offerings taken by competitors. By this stage, I was now on my third plan for the run of the course. I thought back to my poor man's combat run from Gosford to the Opera House in 2009 and how I wobbled into Chatswood. I had food there and it took almost to St Leonard's before I felt better, which was about an hour after the, of getting the food. Of walking so I thought I just needed to walk and needed to let the food settle in I didn't ha- I didn't feel stable while running and felt better while walking at this point Ian for the third time was cheering me on the run the only energy I could muster was the raising of my hand in acknowledgement at this stage he stopped to offer me salt tablets when I said I was struggling I said I was fine and that re- and that reminded me to take my salt tablet and the Panadol at the next aid station. Soon after, Big Chris passed me, cool runner Big Chris, for the second time, offering me encouragement. I thought now was the time to put on the thermal top in case the coldness was affecting me. I felt felt like if I threw up, I would feel better, but I couldn't bring myself to do it, and I didn't want to lose the effect of each salt tablet. And then I decided to sit on the loo for the next aid station. I rationalised at least I would get rest, but in reality, I just wanted to have a sleep. Time was now being suspended, and though I was not in in there very long, it felt a bit better when I emerged. There was no pattern to my running. I would walk for a lot. I would jog for what seemed like a few seconds. I did this through the next four aid stations after the honey sandwich. I finally reached the chute to pick up my third wristband. 21B later said I had done another lap in one hour, 30 minutes. On this final full lap... I still had 10 to 11 kilometres to go. There was one aid station to go before the special bags, special needs bag area, and I felt I was now running more than I was walking. 
I also felt good because the cutoff for the starting of the third lap was 10, 10 p.m. And though I didn't know the time, I was sure I was well ahead of that. The next cutoff for the settlement point was at 11.10 p.m., which I felt as long as I continued to improve, I would be fine. I got to the aid station, managed some banana and watermelon, which were going down well. At the special needs bag station, I stopped and sat on the gutter, speaking to the family while I consumed a peanut butter sandwich. It went down better than the honey sandwich the lap before. 21B said later, I was still slurring my words, but I was moving better. I jogged down the hill to the next aid station and the family was there again to meet me. Now I wanted a bit more of assistance to my running as I had still had over a lap to go and just wanted to finish. So I adopted a street light routine for running, a certain number of street lights, then walking a few while identifying the next street I would street light I would run run to. Every lap I finished, less people left less people on the course and I was running more as I started passing more and more people who were walking. I came into the car park area just after the transition, heading west, and the runner in front of me face-planted from tripping on one of those small speed humps. I was aware of them and was careful, but he, like me, was a bit wobbly and laid face down for several seconds. I called out to first aid, and by the time they got across, he was up saying he was fine, as you would. No one wants to be pulled off the course. A bit later I saw a big guy wobbling on the road in front of me, probably what I looked like, and I stopped to help him. I gave him my dates and said he needed to force food in if he was going to finish, and I pressed on. On my return from the out and back, I saw he was still moving through the course. Clearly I felt my brain was starting to function better. As I walked through the fourth chute, collecting my final wristband, I had less than two kilometres to go. I jogged and walked through to the next aid station in the car park of the swim start, not really feeling anything except perhaps a sense of relief. After the aid station, I thought of my family and friends. I crossed myself and said three short prayers and a Z meditation. I often say to myself and made my way to the finisher shoot, this time knowing I could have a look at it. I ran into the shoot and stopped to walk greeting all the supporters on the right-hand side of the chute and soaking up the atmosphere and the music. I couldn't find my family, but I saw Ian just to the right before the ramp to the finish. After giving him a big hug, I looked to see um, the runner behind me finish and I slowly jogged up to the chute of the finish line. I did not hear them say Martin Pluis knew a nine man, but I knew I had made it. I stopped at the top of the ramp on the other side of the banner exhaled a big breath of relief and spotted my catcher, Pamela Green, who has been a huge supporter of my triathlon journey. She placed a nine-man towel over my shoulders. I was given my medal by one of the fire-burn victims who had a special involvement in the Ironman. Pam heard my family calling out from the side and she took me over to see them and I introduced her to them. Pam guided me around to get my race chip removed in the, and the finishes photo with the medal and then took me to the refreshment tent. I sat with Paul and Di Every, who were still around chatting. I loved every mouthful from the, from the pumpkin soup, ice cream, fruit salad and a cup of tea. I spotted a massage tent and decided to head outside to, to be with Jenny and the kids. It was great to see them and after chatting for a few minutes, Jenny and 21B had to head back to Sydney and 18B was staying to look after me.
18G was staying to look after me. I had finished my Ironman at 10.10pm in 15 hours and 18 minutes, one hour and 40 minutes ahead of the cutoff with a runtime of 5 hours 54 minutes. I headed back into the race compound for a massage and back to the hotel when I realised I hadn't turned on my turned off my Garmin. So much for mindfulness.